0: JakeBot2000, signing off.
1: Hey, because he can edit his voice in here and say anything he wants to about us,
2: and we can't respond.
0: Well, he probably will, and I won't blame him.
2: What you just heard was Josh and Joel making fun of me. But it is true. As you'll hear, I was not able to join them for this episode. We were going to have Joel join us as a guest for Classic 45's Episode 10. But, nevertheless, I remain the primary producer And as such, you'll get to listen along with me as I sit at the editing desk and edit or maybe even insert my commentary. And I have to say, please excuse the strange elevator music you're hearing. It's the neighbors below us. They play it on loop 24-7, 365, and so I just, I can't edit it out. Anyway, without further ado... I'm Jacob King.
0: I'm Joshua Best.
2: And this is Somebody Somebody Else's Else's Favorite Songs.
0: We're taking a look at the greatest singles of the rock and roll era, 45s that were spun by people on record players from the early 50s on up until their disappearance into the 80s and 90s. These are the 45s that created the rock and roll of the United States. So I think this is episode ten of Classic Forty Fives, our ongoing mini series, and Jacob is not here. <laughs> he had. Some Who things... needs them? <laughs> well, we do, but unfortunately, no, we um, really he, do. He had some things to take care of, so. Um we have our favorite special guest Joel is with us once again and he and I are going to bring you this episode of Classic 45s.
1: Hi Joel. A, a special a special daddy-daughter edition of Classic 45s.
0: Sweet little girl. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. I I don't know what uh, it needs to be said. Uh, by way of introduction. Of course, we did not have an episode next week. Some of you noticed that and reached out. We're working on switching over our hosting platform uh, for various reasons, but those don't matter. What does matter is we're back now with another episode. And even though Jacob's not here, uh, he and I will return next week with a regular full-length episode. But until then, we've got another couple of singles to talk to you about. And as always, guests go first. So, Joel, what classic 45 would you like to bring to the table in your first appearance in this miniseries?
1: I'm going to use this as an opportunity to talk about someone who y'all have not yet mentioned, which I find to be an absolute travesty. This
0: keeps happening.
1: I'm going... I am going to mention him. And we're going to talk about one John Weldon Kale. Now just
2: hold on a second before you get all offended. That is not true. I myself featured J.J. Kale in a song on episode 7 called Gateway Songs.
0: Ah, yes. And
2: and my single, my classic 45, will be After Midnight. Not his biggest hit. Hold on a second. That was the exact song that I picked back at episode seven. Did you do you even listen to our show? You must not. Well, since I'm the producer, I'm going to take this opportunity to play my own song that I would have played had I been on the show. And luckily it's one that is so great. It doesn't need much commentary anyway. So check it out. Country music. In 1986. Very pop. Very pop. Now we've just started to have the re-emergence. Of some neo-traditional music. Thank George Strait. I don't think Alan Jackson's quite around yet. But here we have this guy. From Pikeville, Kentucky. Burst onto the scene. His first album released this year. And this is the second single. Off of his album. And this song talks about a certain musical instrument, a certain car, and also a certain genre of music. Let's see if y'all can spot this one. Man, let me tell you what, that is some good country music right there. Man, do not get any better than that. As I said, Dwight Yoakam was coming into the scene at a time where country was pretty pop. Thank Urban Cowboy, which made a lot of headway back in the 80s. Here we have Twangy Guitars, The Telecaster, that'd be the great Pete Anderson who also produced this album. Which is called Guitars, Cadillacs, etc., etc. And John Yoakam wrote most of the songs on that album, which is pretty interesting. I didn't know that. I just, I really love this song. And last week, the week before last, I was at a place in Dallas called Josie Records. It's my favorite record store. The best place to go is a, a bin where they put all the new arrivals before they get sorted into their massive uh, number of shelves and, and aisles which most of the good stuff I've noticed probably gets sold before it leaves new arrivals. But as I was flipping through them, I saw that album, and I thought, man, I didn't didn't even know it was released on vinyl. Turns out it was, and I didn't even look at the album inside to look at the condition of the record I just told Sarah we're buying it. And so we did. Went home and played it. Great album. Great album. Made guys like George Jones pretty mad. I think he was quoted as saying that They didn't like how he was using the word hillbilly music. That was what he was doing. He'd moved to Los Angeles to bring this hillbilly music over there. He wasn't doing much in Nashville. Guys like George Jones had tried all their career to escape that term, which I guess he took it as slightly derogatory in some way. I don't know. All I have to say is, great song, great playing, great album. And I have to say I agree with the sentiment guitars, Cadillacs, hillbilly music, only thing that keeps me hanging on, except maybe I would have to say, probably in general, guitars, driving around in vehicles, and music I listen to keeps me (laughs) keeps me hanging on. So anyway, I guess it would be unfair of me to totally delete Joel's section and totally keep this commentary from y'all. I mean, I am the producer, but I have to be fair. Even though I already played this song, we already talked about how great it is, I guess I'm going to allow it. So let's get back to Joel and Josh as they continue to take us through Classic 45's number 10.
1: But one that is very significant nonetheless.
2: Important and well-known and perfectly
0: uh, appropriate because... This week's episode is coming to you via our remote, uh, Les Studio Du, um, using our new service as Joel is at his home in the greater Waco, Texas area, and I'm in a hotel in Oklahoma City, and the great J.J. Kale hails from Oklahoma. So here's After Midnight.
3: After midnight, we're gonna let it all hang out After midnight, we're gonna check look and shine We're gonna cause talk and suspicion Give an exhibition Find out what it is all about After midnight, we're gonna let it all hang out After midnight, gonna shake your tambourine After midnight, it's gonna be peaches and cream We're going to cause talk and suspicion, give an exhibition, find out what is our whole haven.
0: Oh, yeah, that's a great one.
1: And a lot of you probably said, whoa, I didn't know that was that song, because I'm sure a lot of you know not that version, but the one Eric Clapton released on what I believe was his first studio album, a cover of this song that you may know instead of this version.
0: A common occurrence with J.J. Kale, Oklahoma's favorite son.
2: <laughs> favorite son? He must have been forgetting about Toby Keith.
0: Um, and a great, uh, Eric Clapton, a great admirer of J.J. Kale's work.
1: And, hey, not just Clapton, but tons of other guys who are huge admirers of J.J. Kale. Neil Young, Mark Knopfler. I mean, this guy influenced a lot of big-time musicians, and, in my opinion, probably one of the most underrated artists of all time, as far as his influence
0: goes. Probably so. I mean, the, you know, like you said, the general public uh, often may not know who J.J. Cale was, but they definitely are likely to know after midnight because of Eric Clapton's version, be, uh, because of Call Me the Breeze and Leonard Skinner's version, and uh, a host of, of uh, other you know possibility cocaine yeah yeah one another Clapton another big cover one that's right and this He's particular song comes from his i believe his debut album which is the great uh, naturally
1: that's correct naturally one of the iconic album covers also one of yes, my favorites i like to ra- talk about the artwork on on the albums and <laughs> yeah. that's a classic with the with the uh, the dandy raccoon looking
0: <laughs> yes, yes, the no, dandy not. raccoon is, is the way to put it with the what, bloodhound laying there, and, and uh, I, I just, I, I yes. love that, and it's one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why I'm so glad that vinyl has made such a strong comeback. Uh, it now exceeds CD sales, and even though streaming is still, uh, remains the most popular platform for listening to music, the return of the vinyl album means return of album artwork, which is part of the package, and that was definitely a classic.
1: Yeah, and, you know, funny enough, this was not the biggest hit off of this album. I think I mentioned that. Uh, the biggest hit off this album was Crazy Mama, which ended up placing a few positions higher on the charts. Uh, Crazy Mama's a great song. Crazy Mama is
0: awesome. You may not know that one, folks, but you should look that album up and listen to really straight through. The whole album. The whole album, straight through. Don't miss Crazy Mama, and don't miss Clyde Plays Electric Bass. Plays Plays it with
1: with finesse finesse and and grace. grace. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the whole album is just full of great songs.
0: It is, and his unique guitar playing, which is, I'm sure, something you want to talk about.
1: Absolutely, yeah. And uh, he played a lot of the guitar on this album. He did not play the the wah slide solo on Crazy Mama. I know for a fact. But his he plays with. He's not a flashy player. He sits down and he serves the song, very laid back. I mean, and if it's good enough to influence some of the great guitar players, his songwriting and and you know his his work on the guitar. I mean. If it influences Mark Knopfler and Eric Clapton, you know there's something there. That's I mean, that's all there is to say about that.
0: Yes, and if my prestigious co-host were, were here, he would definitely be talking about how much he enjoys the lo-fi nature of the recording.
2: Oh, yes, indeed. One of the reasons I really love J.J. Gale.
0: So that's something that, that he particularly digs. There's a lot of, of space in the recording. There's, there's not a lot of busyness to the instrumentation, uh, a lot of air, a lot of but it, it it does sound very lo-fi. I mean there's there's not a lot of um shall we say flashiness to it at all. Uh, but you get the song just presented as, you know, here it is. This is this is the song. And uh, After Midnight's a great example of that.
1: I mean, it's country, it's jazz, it's rock, it's blues. It's everything. He was so talented. In fact, His genre was one of a kind. I mean, he came up; he was the leader for what was came to be known as the Tulsa Sound, or I mean, even like Red Dirt.
0: He he would be the godfather. Yeah, I generally refer to his genre as uh, country stoner rock.
2: (laughs) That hesitancy you heard in Josh's response showed that he. Low key disagrees with Joel on that one. And before Joel refers to this as Swamp Rock, I just want to point out that there are only like seven swamps in all of Oklahoma. I mean, that's a good way to describe it right
1: there. I like Swamp Rock. You know, I like Swamp Rock. And actually, now that I'm mentioning that, y'all have mentioned JJK on the podcast, haven't you, at some point? Because I remember y'all talking about
2: this very thing. Now he's got it.
0: I, th- I think it may have come up somewhere along the way. I don't think we featured a song, but. Right. I, I think he he was mentioned. Um,
2: Maybe they don't got it.
0: it. What's funny is this album. What was it about seventy one, seventy two? I want to say it was seventy two. Yeah, he sounds like an old man on it.
1: Well, I mean, to <laughs> be fair, he. I mean, he wasn't eighteen. You know. I mean, he, no, he wasn't. Uh, but he could have been more 70, than thirty. <laughs> he was thirty four. Okay, but
0: still, I mean, he sounds like he's about De- seventy. <laughs> debut
1: album, <laughs> debut album at thirty-four. I mean, he was kind of all over the place in Oklahoma before then, but this guy had so much talent that, I mean, he went undiscovered for a long time. And you know, it's funny his uh, he heard this song covered by Eric Clapton on the radio for the first time. He had no idea Clapton had even covered it, and he described it as. Just him being, oh, cool. It'd be good to get some money, because <laughs> <he's>, he he <laughs> described himself as being dirt poor at the time. And I should, <laughs> I should mention that the single was originally released after midnight. Was originally released in nineteen sixty six. The album that it appeared on was not released until nineteen seventy. Really, Clapton covered it in nineteen seventy. Correct, because oh, covered it. Oh, I didn't know that. So the single was from much Clapton earlier. Correct. Yeah, Clapton uh, covered it before it was released on an album, which I think is interesting.
0: Really? Do you know anything and, about how Clapton would have gotten his hands on a, a a what I assume was a regional single from Oklahoma in 1966?
1: I don't. I have no idea. I mean, I'm we'll have to do some research on that and and find out because people often consider After Midnight to be like one of Clapton's like signature songs for him to play. And so, I mean, it's a very important song for Eric Clapton. Sure. And it was released on his first album, but I think it's funny that the cover of that song, I mean, After Midnight was released before, obviously, but it wasn't released on the album until two years after Clapton had covered it, which I think is fascinating.
0: That That is very interesting where you get the more well-known release of the original quote-unquote after a cover has come out i think something very similar to that happened with joe cocker's version of she came in through the bathroom window which was released i think if memory serves me correctly before abbey road came out so that's always an odd thing from a timing standpoint that happens but that's pretty cool too so i'm glad you mentioned it it may not have been yeah you want you want me to make segment, it a segment you know go ahead
1: Here's where it really gets <laughs> trippy. He re-recorded it for the
0: album. Okay. So, how about so, that one? So, what you're saying is... After, Clapton, version... after
1: Clapton's rendition was a success, he re-recorded the song.
0: So, the version I know is from the album. So, Come you're here. saying that is not the single version. So, that means that Jacob, who is going to edit this, even though he is not present needs to go back and see if he can find a copy of the original recording, because this is Classic 45s. We're going to need the original single version, Jacob. So, we'll see if he was successful with that. Who knows? It may not be available. But, we shall see. I don't know that it
1: is. (laughs) I don't, I really, I don't, I've never heard it.
0: Well, he's got two days to go out and find a used record shop and find that
2: 45 (laughs) (laughs) There you go.
0: Because we got to release this on Friday.
2: Well, you know what? I have taken up their charge to find the original version of this song. I did not have to go to a record store. I actually only went to YouTube. But I have to say, this is truly fascinating stuff here. Because back when I played this song, and back in episode 7, of course I wasn't needing it to be a single. I just thought, this is the only version. I had no idea. See, I thought... Just what they were saying. That here he recorded it for the album. Here Eric Clapton picked it up. And there you go. But as it turns out, this 1966 version that I'm about to play for you, uh, partially, was actually a B-side. He recorded this with his band, The Leather Coated Minds. Now, according to some research I'm finding the album that he recorded with this band called the Leather Coated Minds. It was called Take a Trip Down Sunset Strip and went nowhere, but Clapton got a hold of the song, and there are several stories about how. Now, according to this YouTube video, it says that Clapton heard it through Leon Russell, but some other stories are that he simply heard it on his car radio and went to find it, Another idea is that Buddy Holly's drummer Jerry Allison was familiar with the song and introduced it to Clapton. One other story is that he was that Kale was friends with another Oklahoma musician named Carl Radle, who played the song for Eric Clapton when he was playing bass with Delaney and Bonnie. So, any number of reasons, any number of ways, Clapton could have got a hold of this song. But this really changes things because. Check this out.
3: After midnight, we're going to let it all hang out. After midnight, we're going to choke that love and shout. Going to stimulate some action, we're going to hit some satisfaction. We're going to find out what it is all about. After midnight, we gonna let it all hang out. After midnight, I'm gonna shake your tambourine. After midnight, it's gonna be peaches and cream. We gonna cause talk and suspicion. We going give an exhibition. We going find out what it is all about. After midnight, we're going let it all hang up.
2: This is just absolutely fascinating. It really changes things for me. See, just like the guys said... We all thought that here's J.J. Cale's low-key, low-fi, swamp rock version, if you will, which is so awesome. But then Eric Clapton gets hold of it and reimagines it into this wild night type of song, uh, party atmosphere. But it turns out that his version was very much faithful to the original even down to that guitar solo that you heard there at the end is very reminiscent of Eric Clapton's solo so man really mind-blowing and and really really awesome the things that you can find out and uh one of the reasons I love doing the show and doing this uh miniseries the classic 45s just crazy the things you learn and I didn't have to go to a record store they would have been closed anyway
1: can't speak highly Enough of JJ Kale. Died in 2013.
0: Has it really been that long?
1: It's been eight years. Eight years in July.
0: Yeah. I I would have sworn it was just a couple of years ago that we lost JJ Kale. Wow.
1: Yeah. So it's a shame I never got to see him because, I mean, now he's a big
0: influence on
1: me musically. And I'm just a huge fan of his. And especially the first two albums are both absolutely fantastic and deserve a listen if you're not familiar with him
0: yeah and in fact uh, one of the most recent times that uh, Joel was uh, visiting me back home uh, while we were sitting outside uh, on the patio we we listened through to both of those albums as a matter of fact and enjoyed just just hearing the the unique stylings of his writing and his guitar playing and and many people actually in the industry rate him very highly as a guitar player do they not
1: Yeah, I mean, like I said, when you're getting high praise from Mark Knopfler and Eric Clapton, arguably two of the top, two guys who are, I think, without a question in the top ten. Obviously, Clapton is in the top three, whichever way you want to slice it. I mean, and Knopfler deserves to be way up there, too. So when you're getting the praise of those guys, then there's no question that you've you've got some skill and you've got something to bring to the table as a guitarist, and he did.
0: So I'm really pleased that you uh, featured J.J. Kale as I'm sitting in Oklahoma. It's very apropos, and that was After Midnight from his debut album, Naturally. So I will... uh, Let me list some names for you and see if these names mean anything to you. All right. Neil Young, Alanis Morissette, Shania Twain, Bare Naked Ladies, Avril Lavigne, Ann Murray, Drake... Brian Adams, Joni Mitchell, Gordon Lightfoot, and Chilliwack. Gone, 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 she's been gone so long. She's been gone, gone, gone so long. All those names mean anything to you? I mean,
1: in a big list such as that, I don't know if I could I could pick out the connection there.
0: Well, I tried to be very thorough as I listed for you a bunch of very well-known Canadian musicians.
1: Oh, okay, yeah.
0: So those are all... Canadian musicians that have had uh, various levels of success. Certainly, Neil Young, Alana Shania, um, but but all of them uh, through through various times have had large levels of success as Canadian mu- uh, musicians um, as far as their impact on uh, American charts and record sales.
1: Not going to mention Justin Bieber though, huh? I see how it is.
0: Well, I, I could have, but I don't <laughs> want to. I mean, just like I didn't mention Rush, and we all know why I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's... that's. <clears throat> Michael Buble? No love yes, for that's another. No these Love are for all, Michael Bubble? These are, these are all Canadian musicians. And my suggestion to you on my Classic 45 submission for the week is is that, in a sense, they all owe their success to the first Canadian band that had a number one hit both in Canada and the United States. And while my song selection is not that number one hit, I think that this band charted the course and paved the way for Canadian musicians in the United States and across the world so there was a, a song i'm going to take you back way back to 1960 where a uk artist known as johnny kidd and, and his band johnny Kidd and the pirates had a number one hit in the uk with a song called shaken all over um does, does that name of that song have you ever heard the song shaken all over
1: no this is completely okay. new to me. Never heard of it.
0: All right. Well, Shakin' All Over is a fairly well-known uh, rock and roll song, but not because of Johnny Kidd's version. So there was this fellow named Chad Allen, and he was from Winnipeg, Manitoba. And in the early 60s, he formed a band with a guitarist, <clears throat> and he originally called that band Chad Allen and the Expressions. And later called that band Chad Allen and the Reflections. But they finally had a big Canadian hit by covering this relatively obscure, at least in 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 this This hemisphere, uh, this 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 song Shaking All Over, and had a number one hit in Canada with it. But because it was kind of a British invasion song and had a, a similar sound, and Chad Allen and the Reflections had already been recording the radio DJ, um, the DJs as they played it, would not say who it was. And in fact, what they would say is to the listeners, can you guess who this is? Now, the guitarist that was playing with Chad Allen and the Reflections was a guy named Randy Backman. And before too long, Chad Allen would leave and a guy named Burton Cummings would join Randy Backman. But this idea of guess who this is would never really go away, and eventually they would just take that as their band name. I'm talking about the great Canadian rock band, the Guess Who. Wow, look at there. And it's funny because... In, uh, one of the most famous covers of that original Shaken All Over song was uh, The Who, and they covered it on their, probably the most famous live album in rock history, Live at Leeds. Um, they would play Shaken All Over. And... What's funny is the reason that the Who used to play it all the time is because people would confuse the Guess Who for the Who, and they would be mad that they weren't playing their number one hit, "Shake It All Over." <laughs> so the Who would play that, and then Randy Backman said the Guess Who would play "My Generation" because people <laughs> didn't know the difference in the two. Yikes! <laughs> but they're not, that sort I mean, of—they're not particularly similar. <laughs> not, not really. But part of, and I'm glad you mentioned that because the the guess who had an aspiration to be a hard rock band, um, in in the vein of one of their contemporaries, another Canadian band that was also quite successful called Steppenwolf. Of course, Born to Be yeah. a Wild, Magic Carpet Ride, Don't Step on the Grass, th- those things. But it was, of course, American Woman that really. Yeah, that was their number one in both countries that for sure. That kind of ushered in Canadian rock as part of the American mainstream. But I want to go back one year before that. You know, the Guess Who had a huge number of, of great hits uh, No Time, Hand Me Down World, Clap for the Wolfman, No Sugar Tonight, New Mother Nature, The Great These Eyes, and Share the Land. All of these Don't forget were just my
1: personal favorite. Which is laughing.
0: Well, that's my selection. Let's play it now.
3: I should laugh, but I cry because your love has passed me by. You took me by surprise. You didn't realize that I was waiting. Took away everything I had, you put the lid on me I go alone now, calling your name After losing at the game, you took me by surprise I didn't realize that you were lying On. And now the best years The best years have come in- You took away everything I had to put on me. Will you laugh at me? Will you laugh at me?
0: What you do on the weekend? So that is July of 1969 The Great Laughing by the Guess Who. That is so great. And, hey, so, just yeah. as a
1: sidebar, before we talk about laughing, don't sleep on the B-side of this Classic 45. You just
0: want to go ahead and which is undone totally... Just totally cut off all of my presentation. Is that what you trying to do here?
1: <laughs> I'm. I apologize. I apologize. I, I need to let you. I need to let you discuss your song. But man, I love the, the this. These two songs are like my favorite Guess Who songs.
0: Well, yes, which, there's there's no question, and it's it's funny because like I said, they had aspirations for being a a harder rock band, but they had but a man, huge. That, this hit. works with these eyes and these eyes had had been quite successful in canada and so the record label is like give us another ballad like these eyes and and you know cummings and backman are like "Eh, you know we really don't want to so they just quickly dash off this song laughing and you know boom here we go we've got this i mean it. i agree with joel it's my favorite guess who song And and there's a number of reasons for that. So we've talked about uh, several times the step-down, the descending lines. Well, this song uses another trick where um, we'll nerd out for just a minute for you music people. It starts with an A major chord, which then becomes an A augmented, and then an A6, and then an A7. So in layman's terms, what it does is it takes the three notes of the chord, the do, me, and so, and then it just raises that fifth, a half step, each time. So the first half step is augmented, the next half step makes it a sixth, and the next half step makes it a, a seventh chord. And it creates this buildup that you hear, even if you don't know what the music theory behind it is, but as he's, I should laugh, now, I cry because your love, I mean, it just, it, each time the chord changes by one note and it creates this tension that, that builds until you finally get to the chorus laughing, what you're doing to me, laughing, you took away everything I had, you put the hurt on me. And it's just a brilliant piece of writing that they claim they dashed off on a ferry in 10 minutes. Give me a break. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and you hear those uh, ascending, half-step, chromatic, you know, raising the fifth. And you can't help but, like, sit up just a little taller every time that hits, once you know the song. It's a little taller, yes. a little taller. Is it raised right? just yes. a little bit more? And it is just genius. I absolutely love it. And, man, to think they said that about this song. And I get what they wanted to do. Did Did they want to be, like, you know, pack the stadiums and have big blast-the-walls-down hard rock like, you know, The Who or whatever. But, man, this is like their sweet spot. I love it.
0: I think so. And, and you know, Burton Cummings has one of the more unusual but pure voices in in, in pop of of all time. I mean, it's got kind of a nasal quality to it, and he tends to... Uh, I mean, he's, I should laugh, but I cry, and you know, <laughs> there's there's <laughs> just something about it that works so well, and really, you know, the two of them together, and make no mistake, even though <clears throat> the name Guess Who has been used by other people for years, by the time they finished American Woman, uh, Randy Backman had left the band, and by 1975, Burton Cummings was gone, and even though both the drummer and the bass player in various forms have continued to use the Guess Who name, it, make no mistake. Um, Cummings and Backman are the heart and soul of the band. They wrote this song. And as Joel mentioned, um, Randy Backman wrote the B-side to this single, which, you know, I, we don't normally make a habit of playing the B-sides on these episodes, but Undone is an incredible song that not only features the, the jazz chords that Randy Backman had learned, but also the rare flute solo on a pop rock song that Burton Cummings plays. It's so cool. Now, the only other thing that uh, I, I definitely wanted to make sure that I say about laughing is my favorite feature of the entire song. I, I can't think of another song that has melodic laughter as part (laughs) of it. Were you laughing at me? (laughs) It's so great. (laughs) So the, the, the reason that uh, Randy Backman first left the band was he had converted to Mormonism and he was He's a, he's a well-known anti-drug type and, and just kind of drifted away from the, the rock and roll lifestyle. But over, over time, uh, he and Burton Cummings have, have come back together and, in fact, have played a few times. And you can see some of that on YouTube. But they had scheduled a Burton or, excuse me, a Backman Cummings uh, tour For last year which of course like so many others was struck down by the Pandy but they are starting to release some new dates and they've only got a few listed on the website so far Um, they're as far south as Missouri but once the other dates are released I'm strongly suggesting
2: that it would be a great
0: idea for us to go see Uh, Backman and Cummings, because they're singing not only Guess Who songs, but of course Backman-Turner Overdrive songs. And they discuss them and talk about playing them. And, you know, even though Randy Backman's 77 and Burton Cummings, I believe, is 72, and, you know, if, if if his voice was unique back then, it's, forgive me for an incorrect usage, more unique now as he's, I should
4: laugh after 70 years of cigarettes
0: <laughs> but he sounds great don't get me wrong oh, but yeah. um and he, and of course he's got the burton uh the burton cummings mustache the big black mustache <laughs> which is which is dude. second maybe only to tom selnick and great mustaches it's but i'm i'm going to say my favorite mustache Yes, somebody else's favorite mustache. I'm going to go with Selick and then Cummings. You
2: Y'all were doing good for the last 20 minutes or so. We're, we're uh, beginning to veer just a touch, I, I feel. <laughs> but Selleck I think we should Cummings put
0: that right on the there. list. Do what?
1: Selick and Cummings right up there.
0: <laughs> Even that sounds like a yacht rock band. What are we going to do? It's Selick and Cummings.
1: but the question is do they have that pop sensibility that we just love so much
0: well there is no doubt that the song laughing laughing has that (laughs) pop sensibility (laughs) there is no question (laughs) so I'm i'm
1: sure the guess Who's fans did not you know their true fans didn't really love in fact it looks like somebody here wrote in the montreal gazette that these songs gave its audience the impression that the group only made music for the money That they were selling out by writing these songs.
2: As referenced by their album, the Guess Who sells out.
0: And, you know, that that was something that was said and that that they uh, actually got passed when they released American Woman in 1970. And, Um, And before
1: that, no time.
0: Yes, No Time is a great song. (laughs) No Time's a great song, too. The Guess Who had a ton of fantastic songs. And and the amazing thing is they blew through them in like two years. Like all those things that I listed, that's all over the course of like two or three years. and, And Cummings and Backman wrote, you know, all of them. I mean, it's just it's it's incredible. So all of you Canadian musicians that we listed, who are great in their own right and in their own ways, except for Bieber and Rush, <laughs> all of them owe a debt of gratitude. Owe, to, owe a debt of gratitude to Randy Backman and Burton Cummings, the brains and soul behind the most important and first great Canadian rock band the guess who and and dude let's go see him let's go see let's those go two see guys him. man this Absolutely. is such a
1: bad time to be in grad school all the concerts coming back and I don't have any money <laughs>
2: oh Sterling Cutlass anyone yeah
1: I'm still waiting on my royalty checks for appearing on this show, but none have none have arrived.
0: We'll send you as much as we get, but <laughs> <laughs> the good thing is, my guess is that a Backman Cummings reunion tour is going to be one of those small theater tours that you can get a seat for thirty or forty bucks. Uh, you know, I can't imagine I'm there. that there is a great demand among um, the. Uh, Major consumers of popular modern music to go and see guys that had these hits 50 years ago, but me, I want to be front and center for that just so I can see those guys. You know the absolutely the last thing that I'll mention, and we've gone on way too long, but who cares? You know, we've never done this before, just you and I. So <laughs> uh, there you go. Uh, Randy Bachman was one of the first people who I believe it was Giles Martin, that's George Martin's son, who did a presentation in Abbey Road that pulled together the original master tapes from many of the Beatles' recordings. And Randy Backman, there's a video on YouTube, and you can find it if you, you go look for, um, I believe it's called um, The Most famous chord and popular music, and what happened was he had always wondered how to play the beginning of A Hard Day's Night, and when he was able to go back to the master tracks with Giles Martin in Abbey Road Studios and hear them, he could hear what John, Paul, and George each were playing isolated. And so he's got a little video. I believe it's audio only, but look for it on YouTube because he talks about exactly how that chord is constructed and what each of the three of them are playing, and then he and his band play those three things, and it sounds just exactly the same. You know, nobody knows exactly what that chord is called. There's different ways to name it, but he is the one that uh, has used that as a as a selling point behind his, uh, selling point's not the right term, he's he's used that as an introductory point to his exposure to music, and it's really a cool thing, so look for that.
2: Well, as Josh already said, we have gone, or they have gone, quite a ways over time, so you know what, I'm just going to go ahead and play this clip that Josh just talked about for you. It's less than two minutes long, but it really is so cool, and again, it just it just brings to the, to the fore Randy Mackman's love for the Beatles and the inspiration that he took from them. But he, he is so right. It sounds so cool when he explains it. Well, let's hear it.
5: Okay, the most famous chord ever on a 12-string guitar. This is the one chord that everyone around the world knows. Now, Denise and I were in London last year. A wonderful thing happened. I got an email from Giles Martin, who's George Martin's son. Charles Martin invites us into the studio. So we go to Abbey Road studio, and it's like the suite. No one else can get in there. He says to us, I have all the Beatles source tapes. They've all been put in here, in a computer, in Pro Tools. What do you want to hear? (laughs) I think about it for a while, and I say, well, there's been a lot of argument and speculation, and I know guys have written little books on it. The first chord of Hard Day's Night. What is the first chord? He said, okay, I'll let you hear it. So you put up one track at a time because when you hear it all at once it's like bang it's like the greatest thing to hear all at once. I heard the first chord it was George on a 12 string just like this and it's an F chord but you put a G on top and you put a G on the bottom and you put a C next to that G. Now I said, and put on Paul's bass. What, what note was Paul playing? Paul's playing a D on the bass And John's rhythm guitar was a D chord with a sus4, which means it got a G note on it. So now listen to this. We only did this yesterday, and it just blew me away. One, two, three, four. Isn't that fantastic? (laughs) Woo! Here we go. One, two, three, four.
0: But whether it's... You know, his discussions of that or his time with the Guess Who, Burton Cummings and his mustache, whatever it may be. <laughs> that was laughing by the Guess Who. And, Joel, you chose what?
1: I chose After Midnight, J.J. Kale from Naturally, which was released in 1972.
0: So, as as usual, uh, we have um, a way to connect the two in that these were from a very similar time period. Um 1969 and 1972, uh, one from Canada, one from Oklahoma, both foreign countries. But regardless, uh that was great fun, man.
1: That was that was a lot of fun. Uh, it was it was a little all over the
0: place, but that's all
1: right. We were we we're enjoying yeah. it.
0: Oh yeah, we're we're never all over the place here. We're itself. never all. <laughs> hey,
1: dude. We are always, especially when I'm on the show, it's always right on topic the whole way through.
0: That's exactly right. We're very focused. We're following an outline.
1: Yeah, we've we've planned for hours before this. We hey, point A, this. point A,
0: point <laughs> A, point two, and point four. I mean, that's how it works. That's right.
1: The end justifies the means. Yeah, exactly. Well,
0: the, we the the end, will return... <laughs> <laughs> well, guess who And J.J. Kale. There's your singles for Classic 45's number 10 We'll return next week with a full length episode And I have no doubt That Joel will be back Thanks for joining us and for filling in for Jacob There are There's nothing nefarious going on Jacob will Jacob return Jacob is dead <laughs> Turn me Jacob's on, the dead egg man, man. Yeah. Turn me on, <laughs> dead man Turn me on, dead man uh.
1: There's clues all over the photoshopped um, covers. You need to go back and find them.
0: That's right. Look for the clues. Jacob is dead. No, but he <laughs> will this be replaced. Backwards. No, but he will Listen be replaced by JakeBot 2000. <laughs> <laughs> so, in tribute to our not present comrade, our selections were laughing. The guess who? 1969, <laughs> and. Dude, you need to not
1: insult the person who's going to edit the episode because we don't know what (laughs) kind of nonsense he's going to do to us.
0: And the other selection (laughs) was after midnight. DJ Kale, 1966, but also 1972. But uh, we're going to sign off now because I have nothing of value left to say.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Nope. Hey, thanks for listening to the Daddy-Daughter edition of Somebody Else's Favorite Songs.
2: Well, they couldn't even sign off properly. Figures. Anyway, I hope that you enjoyed listening to our 10th episode of Classic 45s. Again, I'm sorry I couldn't be here to better moderate this uh, last hour that you've heard of nonsense. We hope you'll join us next week. We'll be back in List Studio number one. For another full-length episode, this will be episode 16, I believe. I'm Jacob, the producer. You've just heard Josh and Joel. And this is somebody else's favorite classic 45s. I wish they would shut that music off. I can't even play my own outro. Song I recorded myself. Oh, well. The people won't even be able to hear the vinyl record noise, I swear. Can't have anything nice. Oh, heck yeah!